Our sermon passage this morning is found in Galatians chapter 5. If you'll turn there in your Bible with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the Black Pew Bible in front of you and uh, turn to page 916, 916, where you can find this passage. Uh, We're beginning today a new series. We're going to look over several weeks at the work of the Holy Spirit, and and all of it's going to be drawn from the end of Galatians 5 as we kind of slowly, over these several weeks, work through this whole section. Uh, And I want to encourage you, uh, as we read, uh, to think about um, how maybe infrequently you think about the Holy Spirit. And uh, I want you to hear how Paul describes the Holy Spirit and then note that contrast. All right, let's, let's read together. I'm going to begin in verse 13. And this morning I'll be reading to verse 17. Please hear the word of the Lord. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only... Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of God endures forever. Amen. They say that uh, some people in life are optimists while others are pessimists. Uh, I bet you right now, if I asked you, which one are you, you'd immediately be able to give me the answer. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? And it might be the same answer your spouse would give about you. That was also a joke, y'all. This is hard today. Y'all got to work with me. Your spouse may have an opposite answer. You may think yourself an optimist, but they think you're a a pessimist. Well, it's funny how uh, I've had these conversations all the time with people. Which one is better? Is it better to be an optimist or is it better to be a pessimist? An optimist says, well, of course, I'm better because I see things positively. Uh, I look at the bright side. I see the good in people. I'm hopeful and you're just so negative Nancy. On the other side, though, it's, well, I'm realistic, right? So I'm better. I I see the problems before they happen and I'm able to stop them. You're just all these rose-colored glasses and you're, you're never right. Well, think about it. Let me ask you a question. What is one thing that neither the optimist nor the pessimist can do? I'm hearing a few of you mumble it. Neither of them can change anything simply by being an optimist or a pessimist, right? Uh, Optimism and pessimism are just about how you look at something. It's not about how you actually change things. It's just how you look at it and evaluate it. Well, here's the thing. I want to show you this in this series on the Holy Spirit. That to be a Christian, the Bible's trying to encourage you not to be an optimist, but it's also not trying to encourage you to be a pessimist. It's trying to encourage you in this. Think of yourself as someone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Now, that's different, isn't it? I mean, that's a whole lot different. Because that's not just saying... 
hey, look at life in a certain way. That's saying there is a power resident in you by faith that can actually do something about both the positive and the negative things that you see. It can actually change things. That's what Paul is getting at here. In fact, in the, in the book of Galatians, he's in verse 13, he's turning a corner in his whole argument. In the first part of the letter, he's been arguing against a doctrinal error. And, and the doctrinal error was this. Uh, there were people who were saying you could be saved by what you do. You could be saved by your works. And Paul says, no, you're saved only by the grace of God. You're only saved by what Jesus does, not what you do. But here in verse 13, he starts to turn towards, all right, well, if that's the case, if you're saved by grace, how should your life be different? And it's in that context that Paul brings in the Holy Spirit. And he says, look, it's the Holy Spirit who comes from Jesus to into your life to change you, to make you a different kind of person by grace. And in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, he walks us through what that life in the Spirit, or in step with the Spirit, as he says in verse 25, looks like. Let's talk this morning just simply about this, how to get to know the Holy Spirit. If you look at your bulletin, there are three questions that I think Paul is answering about the Spirit in the verses we read. They're simple. First of all, who is the Holy Spirit? Second, what work does he do in our lives? And then lastly, how does he do it? Okay, who is the Holy Spirit? What work does he do in our lives? And how does he do it? That's where we're going today. Uh, Let's look first of all at who the Holy Spirit is. If you look down at the passage again in your Bible, verses 13 to 17, there is no statement in any of those verses that says, the Holy Spirit is blank. There's no statement that just comes out and defines who the Holy Spirit is. However, in everything that Paul says about the Holy Spirit's work, it is implied who he is. Let me give you an example. And kids, you might relate to this. Maybe some of you adults will too. Have you ever played the game Guess Who? As a kid, I loved that game. I don't know why I loved it so much, but I did. Uh, Each uh, person, it's a one-on-one game. You get a card with a face and a name, and that person has certain physical attributes. You've got a whole list of all the possible people that your opponent could be, and they have all different attributes. And you ask them one yes or no question after another. Uh, are they male? Are they female? Do they have dark hair? Do they have blonde hair? Are they wearing earrings? Are they not? And by process of elimination, you begin to lay down the cards that they can't be until you're left with the one that they have to be because it's the only one that has those attributes. Well, Paul is kind of playing a game of guess who with the Holy Spirit here because he's describing the Holy Spirit with certain kinds of attributes which if we'll listen to them, we can eliminate who he can't be. So that in the end, there he stands for who he is. Uh, Take a look, and this is going to take me a minute to explain it, so bear with me, but I want you to follow the train of thought in verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says first that the Christian life is different because it's now a life of freedom. Did you see that? For freedom, you have been set free, he says. You were called to Freedom, brothers and sisters. You were brought into the family of God and you are set free. But right out of the gate, freedom uh, is hard to define, right? And so uh, anytime you say freedom, everybody tends to sort of define it in the way that they want to define it. Uh, This morning, if I just said to you, guess what, y'all? You are free! How would you respond? Woo! 
yes, yeah, 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 I, yeah, exactly. no church, someone says, that's good, I, lo- I love the honesty, right, I love that, <laughs> yeah, free, uh, many of us, when we hear free, we think, kind of like that, we, we think, I'm free to do whatever I want to do, I'm free to be whoever I want to be, but here's the problem with that, okay, here's the problem, what if someone wants to be something or do something that's harmful. Does the addict start by wanting to abuse the substance? Yeah, that's how they, they start by wanting to. Now, I'll, I'll grant you down the road, they don't want to anymore, but they can't stop. But you see what has happened there. Their freedom, so-called, the freedom to do whatever I want to do, has turned into bondage. Because what they wanted to do wasn't right to begin with. And so Paul says here, look, look at what he says in verse 13. The freedom that Christ brings is different than the freedom this world can give you. It's a freedom that enables us not to use the opportunity for the flesh. And by the flesh, he means the sinful nature that all human beings have the sinful nature we don't use our freedom as an opportunity for that but God gives us a new freedom to serve one another in love because he says in verse 14 the whole law of God everything God ever told us to do and not to do is summed up in this word love your neighbor as yourself in other words Jesus leads us in a new way of life which is truly free not to do what you want to do or be who you want to be but to be who God made you to be That's real freedom. God has a design. God has a plan for everybody's life. That plan is expressed in his word. As Paul mentions here, the law of God is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. That plan is expressed there. Freedom, being set free, is being able to say no to all the things in you that don't want God's way so that you can now say yes to God's way. And he says, be careful, because if you just go your own way and don't listen to God, here's what's going to happen. You're going to bite other people, devour other people, and eventually consume other people. That's verse 15. You are going to consume yourself and consume others. Now look, this is where I'm leading to. Look at verse 16. Paul uses the word but. Do you see that? But I say... Uh, If you follow your heart, just simple, pure and simple, everything you want to do, you try to do it. No discernment over whether it's good or not. Here's what will happen. You will gratify your desires and you will consume yourself and others. But, he says, if you walk by the Spirit, by this Holy Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And here he is playing guess who. So let's think with him about this guess who game. He is implying that the Holy Spirit is in perfect harmony with God's law. The Holy Spirit is the one who is perfectly true. The Holy Spirit is the one who is perfectly good. He wants what is good for you, not what is evil. He's the one who is perfectly powerful and able to affect change in your life. He's the one who knows you perfectly. Omniscience. All right, as you start to flip down the cards of who he can't be, who is left? Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is perfect in power, perfect in truth, perfect in goodness? It can only be God, right? It can only be God himself, the Holy Lord God that the Bible describes from beginning to end. Now, here's the thing. This is a beautiful thing. 
The Holy Spirit is not just some power force. The Holy Spirit is not just some, you know, mystical part of who you are that God sort of lets you get into touch with. The Holy Spirit is God himself coming from God into our lives to fill us. God from God. Let me blow your mind. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, that you can have God from God, that there is one God. You know, the Bible is very clear about that. There's not many gods to choose from. There's one creator of heaven and earth. But this one God is so self-sufficient within himself that he has had this eternal relationship within himself that never began and will never end. He has the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons, yet equal in power and glory. Uh, The Father begetting the Son, the Son being begotten of the Father, and the Spirit coming forth from the Father and the Son. You say, I don't understand that. Well, join the club. Uh, After all, we shouldn't expect to be able to fully understand it. After all, we're talking about God here. We're talking about the essence of God here. Real deep stuff. But of vital importance because what this text is actually saying is this. God designed you and is now saving you to be a temple of that Holy Spirit. All through the Bible, it's the Spirit of God who executes God's plans. He, he, he's the executive of God. He, he brings into being the things that God plans. Think about creation. Uh, Genesis 1, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. But, what does it say? The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. There he is, the Holy Spirit, hovering like a mama eagle over the nest. And God said, let there be light. It was the Spirit hovering over the waters that began to bring the shaping and the filling of the creation that we know so well today. When humanity was made, male and female, God made them out of the dust of the ground and the woman out of the man. And what does it say? God breathed into them the breath. Same word as spirit. He breathed into him his spirit. And the man and the woman became a living being. In other words, from the beginning, human beings were made to house God. We were made for God to be resident within us. That's what it meant to be made in the image of God. As we look through the rest of the story of the Bible, we see him ever present. When God promised Abraham, I'm going to restore that through your family to all the families of the world. Paul tells us in Galatians 3, that was a promise of the Holy Spirit that he was making to Abraham. He was promising Abraham the Holy Spirit. When God raised up Moses and Joshua and the judges and the kings, the Bible says it was the Spirit of God that rushed in on them to enable them to build the kingdom. When Jesus Christ was born, it was the angel that said to Mary, don't worry, Mary, the Spirit of God will overshadow you and you will conceive and bear a son. When Christ was baptized, it was the Spirit who came down as if like a dove to light upon Jesus. And when Jesus was raised in glory and seated on high, what was the first thing he did? On the day of Pentecost, he poured out the Holy Spirit from himself, from the Father, on every believer in the church. Let me ask you, do you think about the Holy Spirit? 
Do you desire him and his presence in your life? Sometimes we forget him. Sometimes he's called the most forgotten member of the Trinity by people. Because we talk a lot about the Father, we talk a lot about the Son, but we sometimes forget the crucial person of the Trinity who comes to execute what Father and Son have planned, to bring it home to us. Did y'all know a church can be spirit-filled? A person can be spirit-filled. A family can be spirit-filled. It's something we ought to be praying for all the time. I'll tell you, there have been several times where I've been really proud of this church. Uh, and I think proud in a good way, in a non-sinful way. You can judge after I tell you. But I was probably most proud recently at uh, Tim Brown's ordination service that we did here. And I was, I was proud for many reasons of y'all. But here's the reason why I was most proud. After the service, a visitor came up to me and the first thing they said was, Wow. What a spirit-filled place. What a spirit-filled church. I don't know if y'all are listening to me because you're not as excited as I am about that, but I think that's an awesome compliment. No, I get it. It's just one person's opinion. I understand that. All pessimists out there. But I took it as a wonderful encouragement, as an answer to prayer, because you know what Jesus said to the disciples? You can't do one thing without the Spirit. Actually, I don't even want you to leave Jerusalem. I don't even want you to leave the room until you've prayed for the power of the Holy Spirit to rush upon you. All right, first thing, who is the Holy Spirit? God from God. Second, what does he do in our lives? And you say, well, you just told us. Well, let me tell you in more, a, little bit, a little bit more detail. Just one more thing, because this is vital there in verse 16. The Holy Spirit comes to make salvation a lived experience in the lives of people. I already pointed out to you that word, but, in verse 16. Very important. I'm going to point out another small little word. Okay, I'm going to make a lot of little words today. It says, but I say, walk by that's the word, by. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What's implied there in the word by? Well, if I said to you, that person can't walk, they can only walk by the use of a walker. What would that communicate? They don't have an ability apart from that particular type of help, the help in the form of a walker. Therefore, they walk by a walker. Here, Paul says, listen, if you uh, learn how to walk by the help of the Spirit, if you learn that the Spirit as a Christian has come to reside in you, but he hasn't come to reside in you just to hang out and not ever be listened to, he came to reside in you so that you would learn how to walk right alongside him, in, his, in step with him, in rhythm with him, because as you do, the desires of your sinful nature begin to shrivel and die. And you begin to learn how to say no to those gross things and say yes to the beautiful things that God wants for your life. It's by the Spirit. In other words, without the Spirit, the Christian life can't be lived. You actually can't be a Christian, the Bible says, without receiving the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. Uh, right now, if you've not noticed, there are a lot of houses being made, built in Mulberry. Did y'all notice that? Everywhere. Uh, most of the new houses being built are actually new neighborhoods being built, new subdivisions that never existed before. 
Cow pasture has become streets and avenues and all houses. How do you, when they're building those houses, how do those houses get connected to Tico's power supply or to Mulberry's water supply or to Mulberry's sewer system? How do you connect each house to that? Does it happen just by building it? Can you throw up a house and then boom, the lights? No, there's a key piece there, right? You have to run a line. You have to run a pipe or pipes. You have to run a line above or below the ground. You have to figure out how to get them gridded in as a part of the grid in order that the resource, which is way downtown or way over in Tampa, wherever it's coming from, all the way to that house in particular. Now, listen, Tico has enough energy. Mulberry has enough water. But unless you are connected into the grid, you won't experience it. And this is the Holy Spirit's ministry. Listen, Christians are not born. They're made. Christians are made. They're not made by human effort. They're made by the power of God. They're not born, they're made. But they're not made by human effort. They're made by the power of God. And so here's what God must do. He must take your life and grid it in to the work of Jesus Christ, which he does by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where the analogy breaks down. Pipes aren't people. And power lines aren't persons. And so the analogy breaks down there because with with the Holy Spirit, we don't just have a pipe running from us to Jesus. We have a resident person who comes forth personally from Jesus to be with us so that in a personal way with God, we can receive what Christ has to give us every single day. We can actually learn how to walk with him and by him. That, that, that implies a relationship that has an ongoing quality about it. Don't you agree? You are with him. He is with you, and you are walking in the way that he walks. Now, somebody might, might say, Look again at verse 16. Someone might say, okay, I get you, Stan. A, a Christian is made by the Spirit. Every Christian has the Spirit. But okay, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I have the Spirit. But yet, it says, if I do walk by the Spirit, I won't gratify the desires of the flesh. But I do gratify the desires of the flesh. I sin. What do you think my answer is? Better yet, what's the, what's the, the Bible's answer? Well, of course you sin. Yes, I know you do. I can see it. And I know you know I do. You can see it. So what gives? I mean, he makes a strong statement. If we walk by the Spirit, you will not sin. Well, it's giving us some insight into why we sin when we do as believers. Why do we sin? Even as Christians, even though the Holy Spirit of God has been given to us to be resident in our lives, why do we still do what God doesn't want us to do? Why do we still neglect doing the things he wants us to do? Simple answer. Because in that moment, we have failed to walk by the Spirit who is resident in us. We are like two roommates in that moment who live together but the one does not pay attention to the other. Did you know that can happen in your life as a Christian? You can have the Spirit with you and be ignoring Him. The Bible calls it quenching the Spirit. 
or grieving the Spirit. Those two words are used, and it's, it's describing how the Spirit lives with us, but we ain't really paying much attention lately. We've been paying attention to other things. And so in those moments when the flesh comes calling, we are going to probably listen to the flesh rather than the Spirit because we've been listening to the flesh all along. The Spirit's there, but He's silent to us because we're cutting off His influence. Uh, we're failing to walk in that rhythm and that, that, um, that step, march step, that the Holy Spirit is wanting to lead us in in our lives. Think about that. It shows you really how personal sin is when we as Christians commit it. Uh, it is a sin not just in the sense of a violation of a rule. It's a sin in the sense that we are ignoring the present God. The God who loves us. The God who has leveraged all his power and goodness and knowledge for our sake and on our behalf. And yet we're, sta- we're sitting there living with him and he with us as if he's not even there. Do you see the tragedy of it? Do you see the tragedy of it? Do you see the remedy for it? See, the remedy as Christians for our sin is to learn how to be aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To actually learn how to pray, God, I don't know what to do. Holy Spirit, show me what to do. Holy Spirit, I want to punch them in the face. Help me not to. I mean, have you ever prayed that way? You should. Holy Spirit... My heart is telling me this, but I see in your word that it's that, according to you. Help me to love what you say, not what I think. If you're not praying that way, you're missing out, actually, on a huge benefit that Jesus won for you on the cross. Huge benefit. Holy Spirit, I love how you walk. I love how you walk. I see it in Jesus, how Jesus walked. Who doesn't want to be like Jesus? But guess what? He walked by the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, help me walk that way today. I'm not saying you're going to achieve perfection by that. We're not. The Bible's pretty clear about that. We don't achieve perfection until heaven. However, I will say real progress can be made because the Holy Spirit is more powerful than your sin. Which leads us to our final thing. How does the Holy Spirit accomplish this? And I want to talk to you briefly about verse 17. There's the matter of verse 17. Look at it. It is an interesting sentence. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed. They're enemies. They're opponents. Two sides of a battle. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. What is the Holy Spirit's strategy for changing your life? Well, somebody says, okay, well, I know what it is. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit a comforter. So he comes and he comforts us. Amen, actually, amen. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. He comes to comfort. Someone says, well, it's to assure me of God's love. Amen. The Bible says the Holy Spirit teaches our hearts that we are children of God. Wonderful. That is a beautiful thing. Someone might say joy. Absolutely. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. He gives me a new and uncommon joy. Someone says peace of conscience. Yes, he he puts my conscience at rest. He does all those things. But I want you to pay attention to what Paul says. 
Because the way, the strategy that the Holy Spirit has for delivering those things might not be the one that we think right away would be the strategy. Because what Paul is saying in verse 17 is that that the Holy Spirit comes to bring peace by starting a fight in your heart. Did y'all read that? The Spirit is opposed to the flesh. The flesh is opposed to the Spirit. So that, in order that, we may not do the things we want to do. Well, that doesn't sound like comfort. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of assurance is going to come from that. In the 1930s and 40s, just transport yourself back. Let's take a time machine, 30s and 40s. We're in Europe. What's going on in Europe in the 30s and 40s? Hitler, Nazism, taking over, right? It's terrible. Death is everywhere. Most of the world wanted peace. And so what did the most of the world have to do to get peace? There was only one way. The Allies didn't invade Germany or Europe or Asia and Japan because they just wanted war. They invaded because they wanted peace. And sometimes in this world of Hitler's and all such other evils, peace is impossible to achieve without battle. What a wonderful thing that God does not say, I want you to have peace, by the way, and you're going to have to fight for that peace yourself and win it. And if you can win it, congratulations, you get my peace. What a wonderful thing that God actually moves into our Europe and he takes on the battle. The spirit comes opposing. Isn't that good? I mean, you can read verse 17 and think, man, that seems like a life of conflict. And, and it is. Listen, it's not always comfortable to live this battle that the Holy Spirit provokes in the heart. And he will provoke a battle. When you become a Christian, in some ways it will get harder than it was before you were a Christian. Because there, there will now be a battle that wasn't there before. But what a wonderful thing that it is God himself who fights that battle. To deliver you from the desires of your sinful nature, which will only lead to consuming yourself and others. So that you can be set free to follow the desires of the Spirit that will actually lead to loving and serving one another like we read in verse 14. Sound like there's a battle going on in the hall, by the way. (laughs) Let me leave you with this. Isaiah chapter 59, beautiful sentence that I want to leave you with. And you might want to think about this sentence throughout the week as you think, start thinking about the Holy Spirit more. God speaking to the people of Israel. 
when the enemy comes in like a flood. Have you heard this one? When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Y'all know that verse? If you don't know it, you're missing out. This is uh, Isaiah 59. Go look it up. When, when the enemy of our souls comes in like a flood and we can do nothing to defeat him, the spirit of the Lord is sent by God to lift up a standard, that is to draw a battle line, to start a fight, to take on our enemies for us. If you're a Christian, you have a resident champion dwelling in your heart. Who you are today doesn't have to be who you will be forever. Who we are doesn't have to be who we are right now. As one writer says, the Holy Spirit is the one who turns a house into a home. I like that way of putting it. He turns a house into a home. He he takes the created space of our lives and he makes it a covenantal space. Uh, He makes it a place where God can dwell with his people and people can dwell with God. In peace, in harmony, in comfort. But his strategy is always and forever to declare war against what rises up against himself. Because anything that rises up against him can't be good for people. You interested in the Holy Spirit? I hope you've gotten to know him a little bit more today as I've talked. And over these next several weeks, we're going to look at the whole section here, starting there in verse 13. We're going to go all the way into chapter 6 a little bit and talk about how we can learn how to live more in step with this resident God who's come to dwell with us. Amen?